think there's a ton of different reasons why someone might do a fund. It's so many skill sets in one if you're a solo GP. Like you have to be good at finding companies, talking to companies, building relationships. But at the end of the day, our job is to like pick winners. And that's actually a very different skill set from liking to help founders. And so I think people should do a fund or people who are really honest about that. And like at the end of the day, your business, like you're still an asset allocator. I think many of us, it took some time to like truly, truly understand that. Like your core job is to make other people money. Today I had Julia Lipton on the pod. Julia Lipton is the founder of Awesome People Ventures. Awesome People Ventures is an early stage fund focused on Web3. She's one of the top Web3 investors globally. In this episode, we covered the founding story of Awesome People Ventures, what led her to shift her focus entirely to Web3, what is the current state of Web3 and what does its future looks like, pros and cons of being a solo GP, how to build a brand through community contribution, reasons to start a fund and reasons to not start a fund, who is outside of work and much more now i bring you julia lipton julia so excited to have you on the pod thanks for coming on thank you for having me julia you've been an operator and and then you uh got into investing you founded uh awesome people venture and you're known to be a community community builder as well maybe a good starting point julia would be uh what led you into investing and what was the founding story of awesome people ventures so i was operating as you mentioned and after our previous company was acquired by one medical and after i left one medical i took a sabbatical so i took a year off and was traveling was planning on doing nothing related to tech but found myself continuing to want to work with companies and startups so i just started helping my friends on the side for fun and then that turned into starting a consulting practice and then consulting turned into taking all my consulting income and angel investing it. And before you knew it, I was basically running cash flow zero angel investing. And one of my friends saw me doing this. His name's Lars Dahlgaard. And he was like, Julia, this is really stupid. You should start a fund. To which I said, who's going to back my fund? I think I was about 30 at the time and had no markups and never had any professional VC experience. And he said, I'll be your first LP. And I took that and took the money and ran. And he gave me enough confidence that I'd be able to fundraise, which I did. And that was fun one. Got it. Uh, so the first believer, uh, I forgot the name. What, what did you say? What he was, he was the first believer. His name's Lars Dahlgaard. He started a company called Success Factors. Gotcha. Got it. And that gave you, uh, and that gave you the confidence, and uh, and then you went on to raise the fund. Maybe we can break it down. Uh, right now, you're on to fund two. Uh, you know, what was uh, the thesis behind fund one? Uh, how was the fundraise journey? And you know, moving on to the fund two, uh, did the thesis evolve over time? And uh, and what was, again, the thought process of uh, doing fund two? Yeah, so I think both funds, the thesis ends up being things where I'm really personally passionate, where I'm already playing with the products, where I'm already understanding the market and I'm just naturally drawn to. And so fund one had a lot of future of work, future of, you know, the way that we work and live and with a slant to things that were hopefully going to make the world a better place. So ideally, the way that we work and we live in the future is better than the way that we work and live now. And so it had a lot of creator economy staff, empowering people to be their own boss, freelancer economy, giving people ownership over their time and their day and on the hopefully living a better life, we had a decent amount of health and wellness, which are things that I'm very personally passionate about within the fund and outside of the fund. So that was the thesis. 
obviously with a very strong slant towards investing in awesome people doing awesome things. And that was fund one. By the time I got to fund two, I was pretty deep down the crypto rabbit hole personally and was going to try to do both out of the same fund. I came to the realization that I should be investing in crypto out of the fund because I was seeing the returns that I was making personally compared to the returns that I was making in web two. Mm -hmm. And there was an order of magnitude difference. And so it felt disingenuous to me to put my money in one place yep. and to put LP money in another place. And so we shifted the focus of the second fund to being a Web3 focused fund. And I originally wanted to try to do both in one fund. And it was actually Chris Dixon who was like, this isn't going to be possible. Like, it's so hard. You have to go all in. And he, he was right. One of my other LPs also asked me about my personal allocation and what percent was Web2 versus Web3. And it was just those two conversations, the one with Chris and the one with this other LP where I was like, oof, I really got to go all in. And so this fund is all Web3 focused. Got it. And what, what's what's the uh, portfolio construction like, Julia? And you know what kind of check sizes do you write? Uh, what stages uh, do you invest in? Yeah, so both funds were structured around the angelist power laws data and so targeting around 40 portfolio companies and the check sizes have changed between funds fund one was a tiny fund so they were all like 50k esque yeah. checks and then fund two it's a little bit different because we save for follow-on but our first check is around like 350 yeah got it and uh you know Going from 50K to 350, I think the game gets a little different. Uh, how have you adjusted and what have been your learnings uh, with the new fund size and the new portfolio? It's a little different. In the beginning, in the bull market, because it was so hard to get allocation, we our tactics were a bit different. Often we'd invest, call it 100K upfront and tell founders that our intention was to invest another 250 before the next round or at the next round at seed. So that way we can build our target check size and eventually target ownership percentage. Now that it's a bear market, it's less hard. Like I can, if I want to write a 250K of check upfront, yeah, I can. Got it. Uh, it's really a function of uh, market right now. And Julia, what were the biggest uh i would say mistakes let's let's you know talk about mistakes yeah, tons. In, your, in your fund one and uh which you uh which helped you in doing your fund two yeah so i think there were entire themes that were just wrong so for example a lot of our fund was invested in creator economy solopreneur type companies and that thesis started before covid and after covid the whole world looked different. Yeah. And what ended up happening in that market, I don't know if it would have been different with or without COVID is there never really emerged a big creator middle class. And for those platforms and tools to survive, there needs to be a big creator middle class. Mm -hmm. And what we found is in most spaces, there's a handful of people making a lot of money and the vast majority of people making way little money, way less money. Mm -hmm. And when that's true, there isn't a big enough market to support all these platforms and products. Yeah. And so that thesis was just wrong. I think there were some other things that I was overly optimistic about, about profile founder types that I think were also wrong. The, I really, really wanted to back smart, nice people. And I think when you look at a lot of the super successful founders, 
people may not describe them as smart, nice people. A, a lot of them are very intense, borderline maniacal about whatever they're doing. Yeah. And I've just kind of come to that realization. I remember one of my LPs actually saying like, Julia, I hope you can pr prove this is right, but I don't believe you. Yeah. And me being so determined to prove that he was right. And I still will only back people that I can work with and people who I think are good people. But the level of like hard charging intensity that you need to make these companies work is just unreal. And I think for a while it looked like that wasn't true because there were so many companies that got so inflated. But when you look at the ones that can like grind it out, like you watch the way Brian Armstrong runs Coinbase and this yeah. dude is a machine. I mean, it is, I don't know personally, but from the outside, like this is an N of like one in a hundred million kind of person. Right. And that's, that's what these companies take. And so the founder type I'm being a little bit more disciplined. So you hear in a lot of people's pre-seed criteria for founders really understanding their past and understanding like what's the hardest thing that people have to have had to go through and like how much tenacity do they have and how much do they really want to win and like how, whether it's like more mercenary or missionary, like where they fall on the spectrum. And I think that stuff is really, really important because when times are good, everyone kind of looks the same. And when times are bad, you need people who are going to like refuse to lose in the bad times. Yeah. Got it. And Julia, uh, given where the market is today and, and you know what's going on in Web3, crypto, in let's say if you're and, and you are into the trenches and you're you know one of the best at what you do, uh, where are we today in terms of Web3 and what do you see? What's the future look like in the next, I would say, three, five years? Yeah, so a lot of it will depend on what happens at the regulatory level. I'm still quite bullish. The energy on the ground with the builders is really, the people who are still here, the quality is high, they're very motivated, and you're starting to see really interesting real trends. The rise of stable coins, the way that especially countries that don't have access to as stable currency are being able to hold digital US dollars is pretty incredible. The way that countries that have a lot of remittances and other forms of payment, how those people can now take those dollars and earn better yield on them than they'd otherwise get. And like their traditional bank or people who don't have access to the banking system, who don't have access to credit, who don't yeah. have access to yield. It is pretty amazing how we're able to export things that we take for granted here in the US and bring them all over the world. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And as you can start to move more assets on chain, you can build all sorts of financial products, access to capital, access yeah. hopefully to wealth that other otherwise wasn't possible. And we're starting to see some of that stuff become a reality today. Got it. And Julia, uh, you know, you, you didn't come from a, a VC background. Uh, it was a lot of was more of like a you know, it happened naturally. And then you had a friend who was, you know, one of the first believers. And while uh, maybe we can talk about the journey from fund one to fund two in terms of fundraising, uh, mm -hmm. how was it in the fund one? You know, what types of LPs you were going after, uh, the biggest learnings, and then moving on to the fund two, uh, how was the process? Did it evolve over time? And were the, uh, you know, types of LPs also evolved over time? Uh, what was the journey like? Yeah, so between fun one and fun two, as I mentioned, I really fell down the crypto rabbit hole. And so during that time, I started tweeting a lot more about those topics, partially yeah. because I was in between funds. So I was investing via syndicates or just writing angel checks. So I yeah. had more time to just explore my curiosity. And in that time, I was able to build relationships with a lot of people who would go on to become LPs and fun two via Twitter and via the internet. Mm -hmm. and 
And so that was a big difference between fund one and fund two, because with fund one, I had no brand other than the people who knew me and people who trusted their friends who knew me. Whereas by fund two, I had a little bit more of a name. And the other way that I built that within the LP community is I included many potential LPs on my LP updates. And so one of my friends likes to point out that I effectively was running like a drip campaign for three years Mm -hmm. to my target audience of LPs. And so by the time I went to fundraise a lot of these people who need years to build trust already felt like they knew me. And that made a big difference such that when I went to raise, I had kind of three different buckets of LPs to raise from. One was my first round of LPs. The second were people I'd been building relationships with for years. And then third were people I'd been interacting with in the space that I was investing in daily online, whether that was Twitter, Discord, Telegram. And it was also the height of the bull market and interest in Web3. So a lot of things went really right. And I got very lucky on my raise timing, such that raising fund two was fairly easy. And I acknowledge a lot of that was luck. Got it, got it. And uh, and and it seems like, uh, you know, also outside of luck, of course, uh, the brand that you were building and, and, and it's not just in few months, it took you, you know, quite some time. Uh, Julia, maybe we can talk about, you know, one, the importance of brand building. Uh, second is how one can, you know, evolve themselves as a fund manager or even how to stay relevant. Like how, how do you think about, uh, you know, on yourself? Yeah. So I do not think about it as brand building. I think about it as relationship building and trying to figure out how to help my community. So we, for fun one, ran this newsletter called Awesome People List, just kind of goes by awesome people now, where we shared awesome people that were available to hire both with our portfolio companies, but also with everyone. So there's 4,000 plus founders, VCs, operators who get this newsletter. We did that every week. In Web3, it's proven to to be slightly different where the ways that I've contributed to the ecosystem was two years ago, we did a big DAO project. This past year, we started a thing called, or we took over my friend Steve's project called Founder Library and created a founder chatbot. And I'm trying to look for ways to actively contribute and build tools besides the newsletter. And it's less about in my head, like brand building and more about how do I add value to my communities and therefore people know me through my work. It's unclear what the right strategy is probably like the best strategy is just content. And I'm trying to find things that are like really authentic to me that I enjoy at the same time. And I'm not someone who just naturally tweets every day. Like I tweet when I'm thinking about something that I think is helpful and I want other people's opinion and I want to collaborate, but I don't just like shoot off thought leadership tweets because it's in my nature, whereas some people can do that. So at the end of the day, I think it comes down to finding a way to build your brand and build your relationships that's authentic to you because it's really hard to do something for a long time if you don't love it. Got it. Got it. So it has to be a natural extension of who you are. And for you, it's it's around community building and adding value uh, to that community. And Julia, you know, what are the pros uh, and cons of uh, being a solo GP? I, I would assume you are a solo GP. Mm-hmm. Um, pros, autonomy, flexibility, ability to make high conviction bets, ability to travel. I mean, I go to a lot of random crypto conferences all over the world and no one can tell me whether I should do that or not. Yeah. Uh, cons are I've had to come up with alternative structures to surround myself with people who will really push me and challenge my thinking to people to collaborate with, people that can, you know, if you basically 
like deconstruct a venture fund, you need people that help you source diligence, analyze, support port codes, and building a network of those people takes a long time. And the jury's still out on if it's better to do in a decentralized fashion or centralized with a larger fund. I think there's pros and cons to both. But one of the cons of having to do it as solo GP is like you have to figure out how to build it all. And that's a lot of effort. And then I also think in the down times, it, it probably took the solo GPs like six months to acknowledge collectively that like times were really tough and like everyone was really nervous and stressed and some people ended up shutting down their funds and all sorts of crazy things happened. But those are those sorts of conversations that I'd imagine if you had a co-GP you'd look look at each other and be like oh fuck we got to talk about this you know yeah. as opposed to just like sitting in silence and being like oh gosh <laughs> and so i'm i'm quite lucky that i have a lot of friends where i could actually do that much faster yeah but i'd imagine it would be really nice in some of those moments at least for me to have a partner where we can just like honestly game plan in real time got it got it so uh what has helped you or working for you is the the network support that you have and that's again like uh you know consciously you've been building and working around it and julia you know for somebody uh you know give through your own experience uh if you want to give advice to others who are thinking about doing a fund why one should do a fund and on the flip side why one should not do a fund I think there's a ton of different reasons why someone might do a fund whether or not they should do the fund is like i don't know that's totally up to them you know like it's 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 so many skill sets in one if you're a solo gp like you have to be good at finding companies talking to companies building relationships but at the end of the day are job is to like pick winners. And that's actually a very different skill set from liking to help founders. And so I think people should do a fund or people who are really honest about that. And like at the end of the day, your business, like you're still an asset allocator. I think many of us, it took some time to like truly, truly understand that. Like your core job is to make other people money. And I would only do this job if you really understand that and are like willing to take on that responsibility. And on top of that, you have to like love founders, think you're good at picking them, all that good stuff. Reasons not to do it. There's a lot of good reasons not to do it. I mean, one, it's really hard. When when everything was up for like a decade, it looked like, okay, power laws, just like pick a decent number of companies that have like good investors and like you'll make money. And I think anyone who'd been in the game long enough would have cautioned against that. And I think now that we're starting to see more of the ups and downs, it's very clear that this is very, very hard, which is why there's so few funds that consistently, you know, very few that consistently across vintages can put up like top quartile returns. So I don't know, pros and cons to everything, right? Yeah, yeah, got it. I mean, do it, uh, only do it if, if you're doing it for the right reasons and, uh, and Julia, you know, uh, you've been a fund manager for the last four or five years. If there's one thing that you wish uh, you knew earlier, which you know now, what, what would that be? Take like bigger, more non-consensus bets. Got it. For sure. Bigger non-consensus bets, like pay way less attention to big firm signal. All of the things in fund one that I think, you know, have potential to really return our fund are things that at the beginning, very few other people believed in. They were not hot companies. They were were really wacky ideas. I kind of put these things in the bucket of like, I call them like founders fund-esque investments where they're just like kind of moonshot things. And I wish I had taken much bigger bets. Gotcha. So really, uh, you know, betting on non-consensus and that's where uh, the biggest returns are as the valuations are uh, uh, lower. And uh, just the valuations are lower, the potential to truly create a new market is much greater. Got it. And with this, uh, Julia, my, uh, my co-pilot wants to get in. Uh, he is 
uh, asking me to ask you, uh, what's your typical day like from uh, waking up to going to bed? Well, I wake up and I don't wake up with an alarm. So I might wake up at 5.30. I might wake up at 7.30 and I get out of bed. I brush my teeth. I have a little like morning mini workout routine, like 20 squats, 20 push-ups, a minute of planks, another minute of side planks and like 40 tricep dips. Like I just do that every morning. And then I get breakfast. I try to get some like good protein and a lot of greens. And if I don't have time to like make something fancy, I might just do like athletic greens and like eggs or something or like bone broth. And then usually we'll get on my computer. Sometimes I'll try and go for a walk, but it really depends what yeah. what I have on the docket. Like today, I really should have gone for a walk, but I was like a little bit nervous about like prepping for my day because I have a lot of meetings. And so I wanted to get on my computer and like just get to it. And then it depends on the day and it also depends on the market. Like during the bull market, I probably had 15, 15, 10, 15 meetings a day. Like it was just absolute insanity. Right now, I probably have five to seven, which is much more manageable. And in between meetings, I'll usually try to start meetings in the afternoon. Today was an exception. And when I'm not doing meetings, I'll try to do writing. So whether that's newsletters, LP updates, thinking about my own thesis, outlining questions that I need to have answered. I'll do that sort of stuff when I'm not doing meetings. And then we'll usually take a break for lunch at some point in the middle of that day and try to take a break for like a proper workout as well. Got it. Evening dinner, sometimes with friends. I'm really trying to make sure I'm not on screens an hour before bedtime because it really impacts my sleep. So I'm trying to be more disciplined about that. And so that's actually lately looking like doing absolutely nothing for the hour hour before. It's not like quite meditation because I wouldn't say I'm like as conscious about it, but like deep breathing, sitting on the couch. And I'm amazed at how much I can get my nervous system to decompress and how much better I sleep and then how much better I am the next day. Got it. And Julia, what are you uh, most obsessed about outside of work these days? health, but I've always been most obsessed about that outside of health. So like I'm, I have some health stuff that I've been dealing with all my life and will be dealing with all my life. And so just figuring out like the best way to optimize all of this stuff, whether it's you know, supplements, IVs, peptides, hyperbaric oxygen, like any wacky neurostimulation, like all all of the above, just endlessly fascinated in it. So I'm really spending a lot of time in that. And then also my dad has Alzheimer's. And so I've been spending a lot of time trying to understand that and research that. There probably is too much we can do for him given a variety of factors, but just trying to learn as much as I can. So mm-hmm. maybe in another chapter of life I can I can help more people. Got it. Got it. And Julia, anything uh you've changed in your diet recently or any new product that you're using that's just you know helping you out a lot honestly i think the biggest thing is just being really disciplined about breath work yeah like i've been i've been able to really meaningfully change my dreams which has been really helpful i most of my life have had i just describe them as anxiety dreams like preparing for the next day of work or like fear of something happening or like you know you're traveling and you miss your plane like whatever all that that sort of stuff and i've really focused on like deep breathing and visualization and all that good stuff before bed and i now have way better dreams like i noticed that a lot of my most successful friends when they went to bed they were dreaming of being like army generals or superheroes saving their city and like they had this like really bold 
confident, like seemingly absurd dream life. Mm -hmm. And most of my girlfriends, when I talk to them about this, like most of my female founder friends, my female fund manager friends, all of us have anxiety dreams. It's like all my high performing top female friends have anxiety dreams and all my high performing top male friends have like superhero dreams. And so I've been really interested in like how to switch. And and I think it's been less about diet lately and more about breath work. Breath work. Got any, any, uh, like what kind of breath work do you follow anyone uh, someone can follow that i mean usually it's just really simple box breathing yeah gotcha deep breathing in like different poses and julia we know you as an investor uh what do your friends know you for who are you outside of work i say like i'm really just like giving and loving i curate a lot of events um so you know a lot of my friends we had an event this past weekend and they were like we're like an automatic yes to anything you invite us to because we know it's going to be cool so i really like producing cool experiences for folks got it julia thank you so much for doing this i had a lot of fun uh thank you so much for coming on the part yeah thank you for having me